Our passage this morning is Romans 12, 3 through 8. For, the grace, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For, is, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith, in service, in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks for joining us at Sojourn. My name is Dylan, one of the pastors. Man, it's been awesome to be able to go through the book of Romans. Uh, here we are in Romans chapter 12, picking up the pace a little bit more than the one or two verses that we've been doing recently, going through, man, even more than uh, three or four. We can go through five or so this week. So, Would you pray with me as we turn to God's Word? Father, would you just help us now to remember that apart from you we can do nothing, but if we abide in Christ now, uh, we can bear fruit. And we will bear fruit through him and in him. God, we come as those who are in need, and we come to one who is not lacking. So fill up what is lacking in us with your infinite supply, that we might bear fruit for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Perhaps you've heard of Major Dick Winters. He was the leader of Easy Company. Spoken of in the book, Band of Brothers, or have you seen in the video series, Band of Brothers, great leader and by all accounts a great man, and he said these words. He says, I cherish the memory of a question that my grandson asked me. He said to Major Winters, Grandpa, were you a hero in the war? He said, no, but I served in a company of heroes. He cherishes the memory, not of all of his heroics and not of what he accomplished and was able to do as he led Easy Company in World War II. He, he cherishes the memory of being able to say, no, I, I wasn't the hero, but I served a company of heroes. His joy, his cheerfulness was found in belonging to and functioning with a great company. Paul calls the Christians to live a life in, in a company of one another. He calls Christians not to be great, not to be heroes. No, they already have that, right? We've been talking about him for uh, several chapters in the book of Romans. We have our hero. His name is Jesus. He is the one who's the propitiation for our sins. He is the one who was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. He is the one through whom we have peace with God. Now, we don't need to be heroes or to be great. What he says instead for Christians, because of all that, is to think soberly of themselves. Because they belong to a company, they belong with others, and they're to function within that body that they belong to. It says, think soberly of themselves, belong and function with a great body. 
An in Christ body. That's how great it is. And in verse 1 of chapter 12, he, he talks about how we're to present all of our lives, all of ourselves as a sacrifice to God. It's an all-in situation with God. If you're in Christ, you're all in with God. And in verse 2, he says, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There's a process that has begun in us as we've presented ourselves to God. Now we're being transformed. And believers who are all in and being transformed are, are not to live a solitary life. The all-in life, the life that's being transformed by the renewal of their minds, is not one where we are by ourselves in the foxhole. It's meant to be lived alongside one another. Where we're in the trenches with others, a company of people. And so from verses 12, 1 and 2 is going to come the rest of the book of Romans. 12 through 16 are going to flow from these great realities that we are to present our lives as a sacrifice to God and that we are to be not conformed but transformed by the renewal of our minds. And from that is going to flow everything else. From that's going to flow normal Christianity. So when he speaks, um, flowing from those two verses in verses 3 through 8, he's not speaking of elite Christianity. He's not speaking of ethereal Christianity, where where it's just an idea or a concept. He's speaking of normal Christianity by the mercies of God. And here's what he exhorts normal Christians in normal Christianity. Think soberly of yourself, belong to others, and function together. Think soberly of yourself, belong to others, and function together. And, and this, as verses 3 through 8 say, is a beautiful thing. You know, Major Winters, he cherished serving in a company of heroes. And, and Christian, this is a beautiful thing. We can cherish it. This is the vision that's put in front of us, that we get to belong and function alongside others who are all in with God and being transformed by the renewal of their minds. That's the company that we belong to. That's what scripture is calling us toward and who wouldn't want to be part of that of being alongside all these others who are all in with this God and being transformed and sanctified on this journey that's what scripture is calling us toward together and that's what we need to be moving toward so Paul doesn't skip a beat in going from verse one and two of of, of kind of thinking individually presenting our lives as a sacrifice to God to moving to belonging and functioning to others So if we belong wholly to God, we're going to be a people who belong wholly to God who belong to others. How? Well, he says, here's how we do it. We we first, we think soberly of ourselves. He he specifically calls for individual saints, individual believers, those who are in Christ, to think with sober judgment. Verse 3, he says to each of them, by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you... We skip over so quickly or read quickly through that, that word grace. We need to remember the grace that he is appealing to, the grace that was given to him. It is a grace that was a powerful grace, a grace that transformed him. The grace is this power of God, the same kind of power that, that you know, he spoke of in chapter 116. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. It's that kind of grace that had been given to Paul. Where once he was a, a persecutor of the church, now he's trying to build up the church. What happened there? What's the transformation? Well, grace happened there. This is a grace that had saved him. He knows he was 323. He, had, he was fallen short of the glory of God. And he knows verses 24 of chapter 3 as well, that he was justified by grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And that grace that saved Paul is the same grace that sent Paul. Look in chapter 1, verse 5. He says, through whom, through Jesus Christ our Lord, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. He'd received grace 
that had transformed him from, from being an enemy of God to being a, a, a friend of God, reconciled to God, justified in God's sight, and he'd received grace in part to bring about, as an apostle, the obedience of faith of a people. And what that obedience of faith looks like, and what he's trying to work for as an apostle, by the grace that was given to him, is described in these verses. And indeed, he's going to describe a lot of what that obedience of faith looks like in chapters 12 through 16. And so he directs this at everyone, by the grace given to him, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Paul, again, he he begins with a negative command here, doesn't he? And here's this negative command, which again, like we saw last week, don't be conformed. It, it, It assumes the presence of sin. It assumes the presence of sin, not just in general, but in every one, each of the people that he's actually writing to. He's assuming, as he writes to them, there's sin among you, and he speaks right into the middle of it with, let's not do some things. There's a way, he's suggesting, that one ought to think in a way one ought not to think. And he knows that there's a tendency of thinking in the way that we ought not to think. And here's the path that's being used. Here's how you think how you ought not to. You think more highly of yourself than you ought. Now certainly the opposite could be true as well, but, but the primary means of sin in normal Christianity is to say we can think more highly of ourselves than we ought this is a, a thinking that can, you know, I'm going to place myself higher than those around me. Or try to take a position that's not given to me. Think of King Uzziah in Second Chronicles chapter 26. He is a great king. If you look in 26 verses 15 and 16, like he's developed, the, he's, he's, look at all that, he's, he's got machines that can shoot arrows. I mean, he was strong, it says, but look what happens in verse 16. When he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on all the altars. That might sound like a good thing, but what he was doing is, as a king, he wasn't supposed to burn incense in the temple. That was left for another of another role, not for the king. And he tries to take a place that wasn't his. He's thinking more highly of himself than he ought. That's one way it happens. Or we can think that we can find purpose and meaning on our own. That's another way of thinking of, of ourselves more highly. Think of, think of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. What did they say? They said, let's build a tower to, to the heavens. Let's make a name for ourselves. In other words, we can find meaning and purpose on our own outside of God. We can do it on our own. Let's do it that way. That's a way of thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. Or we can think that we're enough, that we have enough. I can achieve all that I need to achieve on my own. I can achieve my own worth. Think of Nebuchadnezzar in, in the book of Daniel. He, he begins... Even after being warned by the prophet Daniel, he, he looks around and says, look at all that I've done. I've done it. I, I've been enough. I've achieved my own worth. Look around. Isn't this all because of me? Aren't I so great? And then the Lord humbles him because he was thinking of himself more highly than he ought. It, it's thinking that I don't need help. I don't need instruction. I can do this on my own. You think of the book of Judges in chapter 21. Everyone was doing what was right in their own sight. Do you remember the book of Judges? It's a, it's a tragic story from first to last. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, and it's a disaster. It's terrible. And not just for individuals, but for the entire community, it's atrocious. These are just a few ways that we can think of ourselves more highly than you ought. You might be more th- thinking more highly of yourself than you ought if you think that you're always right. If you always have an answer to everything. If you're constantly correcting others, but seldom give room for others to correct you. 
if you think that you're better, wiser, more mature, further than others, you might be thinking more highly of yourself than you're ought if you're prayerless. If you don't need anyone, you can do it on your own. If you're constantly worrying, if you can't rest, if you can't receive help, all this and a million more, a million more we could say, are ways that we think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And this inclination is in us and it's present. And that's why Paul has to say, don't do some of these things. Because we need that negative command. Here's what one commentator says when he says, we must take heed of having too great an opinion of ourselves or putting too high a valuation upon our own judgments, abilities, persons, performances. We must not be self-conceited nor esteem too much our own wisdom and other attainments. Man, the negative command is needed, isn't it? We come to this, and and when he says, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought, it levels everyone that he writes to. And that's everyone among you, he says. Each of us. And he levels us. But he doesn't leave us there. Look what he also says. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Right? There's a better way. There's a better way than not just thinking of yourself wrongly. Like there's a better way to think. There's a way that you ought to think, we could say. He says, think with sober judgment. That is to be right-minded. The, the, the demoniac in, in Mark or the other Gospels, they talk about how when Jesus came and cast the demons out of him, he was in his right mind. That's the concept there. You're in your right mind thinking soberly. There's a, a, a right kind of assessment, a proper self-awareness that Paul is calling for. And I think Paul models this so well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look at verse 9 and 10. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, I'm the very least of the saints. But to me, the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of his mercy. Or in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says in verse 15, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now, that's interesting. I actually think that even that was sequential. That was in a progression, probably in the order that he wrote them. So he goes from 1 Corinthians 15, I'm the least of the apostles, all the way down to 1 Timothy 1, where he says, I'm the, I'm the least, I'm the foremost of sinners. There's a progression, it seems like, in ways, but there's no despair. He's not sad about it. There's a reality that continues to soak into Paul's life, but he's not paralyzed by it and doing nothing. He's not discouraged or depressed. No, what he's doing is he's thinking soberly of himself. He says, I'm not worried about these things. I'm the least of the apostles, but what? Why is he not depressed? Why is he not discouraged? Why is he not paralyzed by his past and his sin and what he has done? Why? Because he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And he says, I'm the the least of the saints, but grace was given to me in that place. I'm the foremost of sinners, but God showed me mercy. He knows the reality of his past. He knows the reality of his sin, but he also knows the overwhelming reality of God's grace in his life, and it's working. And he says, actually, that's greater. By the grace of God, I am what I am. That's the final word on me. 
And the way to think soberly is to know who you are. And certainly that includes all of this past, all of this sin, all that's there. But it also includes who you are by God's working. So that we could say, yeah, I might have been a persecutor of the church or one who thought proudly or we could go on. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's not what I was. I am these things now by the grace of God. Yes, we still know all about our past. But we also know by God's mercies that now we are a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. We please God by offering our lives to Him. We, we think soberly. And when we think soberly, this gives us a better way to view not only ourselves, but the world that we're living in. Now, when we say we're thinking soberly here, it's not to say we're, we're calling for a low view of yourself over a high view of self. That's not what thinking soberly is. Thinking soberly is thinking of yourself in light of God's grace, in light of the mercies of God, in light of God's working and doing in your life. And what this does is it keeps us from thinking too highly of ourselves, right? It's God's doing that we are what we are. It's His work. It's His grace. It's unmerited. It's not deserved. It's by His power that we are what we are. And it also, that keeps us from thinking too lowly of ourselves. We, we don't go either way. Thinking soberly doesn't mean you're discouraged and depressed all the time. That's not what Paul is talking about. We, we are what we are by God's grace. And so that protects us from thinking too lowly of ourselves. Because again, when we were still sinners, Christ's love met us there. His grace meets us when we're needy. It doesn't meet anybody else apart from that. And so it keeps us from both thinking too highly of ourselves and thinking too lowly of yourself. So thinking soberly of yourself Here's what this does, is that it matters when we live life with one another. Because in this life that we're meant to live, if we belong wholly to God, we're going to belong to others, we're going to see that in a second, but this life that we're meant to live is a life lived in a body. And, and in how we think of ourselves matters in this body, because in this body not everyone is identical, and I think that's what he tells us in verse 3. Right, there's, there's each, there's, according, uh, there's a faith that's according to measure, and, and God has assigned it. So not everyone is identical. Now, now we know that faith in, in the book of Romans justifies us, makes us right in God's sight. We have right standing with God through faith in Jesus Christ. It, it, in a way, right, we're not saying that faith itself justifies, but faith in Jesus justifies. It's the object of our faith that puts us in right position before God, right relationship with God, right? And, and justification, right standing before God, is a gift, like, even when we speak of justification, we're not saying we've earned it now by faith, as if that's another work, another thing that we do in order to get right standing with God. No, we're looking totally in faith to another to save us. That's what justification is, is that we're looking fully to Christ, and God looks on that faith and says, I'm going to count that as righteousness, right standing. And so by faith, we have right standing before God. That is a gift to us. By faith, by trusting in Jesus, by receiving from him and resting in him, we have right standing with God, peace with God. We're heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. But God has also assigned a measure of faith. And I don't think it's talking about the exact same faith that justifies here. He, he's speaking of a measure of faith to each individual, a quantity, an amount given to each one. And it apparently is not equal. There's not equality among all of the many or the everyone that he appeals to here in verse 3. It's not equal. In fact, in chapter 14, verse 1, he's going to say, as for the one who is weak in faith. In other words, there's different amount and quantity as God has assigned. So, so while you're justified, you're still in, in chapter 8, verse 29, being conformed to the likeness of his son. So there's still a measure of faith going on in the midst of this life. And while any faith is a gift that God grants, 
God apparently grants different amounts to be exercised. And we're to all to think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Because not everyone is identical in the quantity or amount of faith that they have. And so because that's true, Paul says, think soberly. Think rightly of yourselves. This is needed. In chapter 11, verse 18, he had to warn them, right? Don't be arrogant toward the branches. Or in chapter 14, he's going to speak of the weak and the strong in faith. And he's going to warn them. All these warnings are around because, hey, it looks a little different. God has assigned faith differently. And so what we need to do in the midst of that is think soberly. Think of ourselves rightly. By the grace of God, we are what we are. It's where faith intersects with others that this warning is given. If you were to live life and meant to live life on your own, this wouldn't matter at all. You could go ahead and just cut this out of your Bible and, and, and not worry about it. But we're not meant to live life like that if we're in Christ. And so we need to heed this warning because where it intersects with others is where it really matters. Because the faith given is faith given not for a solitary life. And so thinking soberly of yourself is important because by faith in Jesus, we also belong to others. Right? Verse 1, we belong wholly to God, and because we belong wholly to God, we also belong to others. The, the basis, the ground for verse 3 is found in verse 4 and 5. He says, for as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Members one of another. Paul uses an illustration that every single person can identify with. The illustration of a body. And this body is one. You can't separate it out and exist on its own. That would be weird. I mean, you've seen the, the uh, Adam's family little hand. It's, you know, crawling around. Like, it's strange. It's only on that show for a reason, right? It's like it's a creepy thing. That's not how it works. This body goes together, and yet not everything's the same. Things are different. Like that different parts do different things. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 12. Like the ear can't do what the eye does. If everything was an ear, that'd be a really strange thing and not helpful. If everything was an eye, again, same kind of thing. And so he, he, he gives this body image, one body, many members. And he says, church, that's what you're like. The church is like that. Many members. They're diverse. There's a variety here, including not only just what they look like, but in their function, what they're meant to do. But... And, and here's where the emphasis is in verses 4 and 5. But they're still one. They belong together. Notice the present tense reality, the present tense identity of this body. He says, we are one body in Christ. That is your identity, church. We are one body in Christ. And, and what binds us is our in Christness. One body in Christ. That's what binds us together in body life. So the very essence of this body for individuals and for us as a whole is its in Christness. Our essence individually and our essence together is our in Christness. That is to say that all of us are looking to Jesus as everything to all of us, right? Jesus is all to all of us. That's what binds us together. And if that is what's binding us together, then there could be all kinds of things that are various and different, but that one thing is stronger than all of that. Jesus is everything to everybody. That's the essence of unity. And in Christ, he has said already in the book of Romans, you are dead to sin and alive to God. That's 6.11. In Christ, there's no condemnation. That's 8 verse 1. And notice, in Christ now, we are one body with others. In Christ, you're not just one of those things and not the other. There's not just no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and you're on your own. There is, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you're in Christ Jesus, you're in this body that's in Christ Jesus. You belong to others. You, you don't have one of those things without all of those things. 
And if you do, then you need to examine what does in Christ actually mean? We see this in the book of Acts as well. In the book of Acts, in chapter 2, Peter is preaching, and as he preaches, people are being saved by the hearing. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. That's what he's giving them. And listen to what happens. In chapter 2, verse 47, they were praising God, and they were having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. There's a correlation between salvation and number. It's found again in chapter 4, verse 4. Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Or in chapter 4, verse 32. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And one, no one said that any of their things belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Notice the correlation. Number and salvation. John Stott says it this way. Salvation and church membership an actual numbering, went together. And then he adds, they still do. And yes, they do. They were being saved, and they were adding themselves and being added to the number. Those go together. Being added to the number wasn't coerced. It it wasn't just uh, the next stated thing as if it wasn't important. It was stated as if it was the most natural consequence of their salvation, was to come into this body of those who had experienced salvation as well. The truth of us as human beings is that we're made to belong with others. And the truth of us in Christ is that we're made to belong to others. Think about the picture of heaven. It's not a solo place where you're kind of on your own looking at the glory of God. It's a place that's full of people where they're all together. Jesus is everything to everybody there. And they're all doing the same thing. We're all giving glory to God. Now sin comes in and has disrupted that here and now. It has stifled some of that. But we remember that we're in Christ and the age to come has broken into the present age and it breaks into the present age where the people are in Christ and in this body that's in Christ, where the people don't just belong wholly to God, but they belong to one another. It breaks into the present where people are members of one another. Amen. And this one another just it implied here is that they know who he's talking about. Right, when he says you're members of one another, they're not thinking, I wonder who that one another is. They're thinking, actually, we're hearing this letter being read to us and we're looking around at faces. We know their names and their stories. We've been doing some things with them because we agree that Jesus is all to us and we want to listen to this letter from this apostle because we want to know how to follow this Christ. They know who one another is. There's an awareness there to this. And so there has to be an awareness, church, to us. We're to belong to others. There needs to be an awareness. Who's that one another? Who are those names? Who are those faces? All of us long, and we have this natural longing to belong deeply. And in Christ, that longing becomes present reality in the body of Christ, the local church. That's many members and one body. By saying that, that word body, we, we can understand the, the many, the diversity being one. But we also can understand some of the hardship there too, can't we? I mean, have you ever woken up with a, a crick in your neck? Am I saying that right? Crick? I'm always confused, but it's because it sounds like such a weird word, but crick in your neck. Yeah, I mean, I've, there's been times when I'm like, I can't turn my head, and nothing happened. All I did was sleep. Like, I, I didn't, like, exert a lot of energy, like, lifting weights, because I never do that. Um, 
I didn't like go on a run. Again, not an activity I'm, I'm going to be involved in. Like, I just went to sleep. I probably was sitting down most of the time before I went to sleep. So it's not like I, I built up to this. Like, no, I just went to sleep and I woke up and now I can't turn my head different ways. Like, have you ever had that happen to you? Why does that happen? Like, if you, there's probably some science behind it, but I don't know why it happens, right? Like, I don't know. Body life comes with some aches. It comes with some pains. It comes with some limits. It comes with aging, and it, and it doesn't slow down. You can't stop that, and it's frustrating, right? I'm frustrated when I wake up after doing nothing, that I have a problem in my neck because I feel limited, and, and I want body life on my terms. I should be able to go to sleep and wake up being just fine, but I'm not. And isn't that the way we view body life, uh, that is the church life here and now? Man, we, we want that life on our terms. We think about the, the theologically cricks in the neck, right? Crick can be a theological term. And they're painful. And they've hurt us. And there's ways we feel like we can't turn our head in the same way because of that, that pain that I used to have. And it's frustrating. And it makes us want to be in this place where like, I want to be done with this body. I'm done with this. Or I'll be in, but only part of the way because I can't turn my head that other way because one time I did that and it really hurt, so I'm not going to turn my head. I'm not going to be all in. I'm going to be half in. We want body life on our terms. But just like a crick in the neck, body life isn't on our terms. I, I can't prevent, I don't think, that I know of. Maybe you can help me. I can't prevent going to sleep and waking up like that. And, and church, like, we can't prevent some, some aches and some pains and some limitations that are, that are happening. We can't prevent some, some aging going on that's going to be painful. But body life isn't on our terms. Body life is on Christ's terms. We belong to Him. And if we belong to Him, we belong to others. And we belong to others on His terms because we belong to Him. And He knows that there are pains. He knows that there are aches. He knows that there are limits and he knows that all these things can be frustrating. He knows that what we'll want isn't always going to happen. He knows all these aches and pains of our soul. And yet, he doesn't say, live life on your own. He says, we are members of one another. We belong to others. He knows all the aches and the pains. And yet, he says, here's what I want you to do. Belong to others. That's his to decide because we belong to him. But in that, we can remember, just like our physical bodies, our, our physical bodies are reminding us that we're moving towards death, but we know in Christ that we're not just moving toward physical death, right? We're also moving toward physical resurrection. And that's what the body of Christ is moving toward as well. We are moving toward a glorious future together. And so we endure some some aches and some pains and some limits because this is the terms that Christ has set up that we live life with one another and there's going to be some of that as we move on our way to glory and one day it is coming that one day Christ is going to have a pure and spotless bride a body that has no aches that has no pains that has no more limits because he's washed it pure that's where we're moving toward and as we go on that direction we're meant to do it together there is no place in the scripture to move toward that alone I wonder what we think of heaven. If we think that this life is meant to be lived alone, I wonder what we'll think of heaven. Seems to be, as all the pictures that we get in the scripture seem to be really full, kind of crowded. 
not very lonely. And if that's where we're going, and we're doing body life on His terms, and He's commanded us, you belong to me, then you belong to others. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to Christ. And if we belong to Christ and we belong to one another, this is a Jesus-bought reality that we're to live into. You can't live into that reality and that identity without an awareness of who one another is, without an awareness of some faces and some names. You can't be a member of one another and belong to others apart from others. Those are contradictions in terms. And Christians, he says, you belong to others. Here at Sojourn, we actually think that you should make a formal commitment of membership. Now, all the pastors and and many members, we're here, we're saying, we think that Formal commitment to membership matters, that it's prudent, that it's wise for individuals, an actual number, as the scripture talks about, to commit to one another. It matters to say to one another that are here, who's saying, hey, I'm in Christ, and I'm members of one another, of those others who are in Christ. And so again, like, because I believe that that's true, and that it has biblical roots and foundations, man, I couldn't help but nudge you in that direction. There's an actual number in the scripture, and I think that we should have a number. We want you to be wise and to listen to this. And we think that, man, having membership, an actual formal commitment to one another, indeed, an actual covenant, doesn't make us strange or weird. I think it helps us live out carefully and wisely what the Scripture lays down to us. And so maybe I'll give you a nudge in the direction towards actual formal membership, where you can fully say, I belong to these people who belong to Christ. Here's what we'll know about that. There's going to be pains. That does not, formal commitments are not going to eliminate some of the cricks in the neck. Like the knee's going to feel a little bit stiff in the cold weather. Like you're, you're going to have some aches and pains. But by the grace of God that we've been given, by the mercies of God that Paul's been appealing to, we're, we're moving toward a future together as one body in Christ as Christ has prescribed. And so not only do we belong to others and to one another, but that the belonging and that togetherness is meant to function together. So we belong to others and are meant to function together. So we think soberly of ourselves, we belong to others, and we function together. After the emphasis, verses 4 and 5, on unity, though we're many, we're one, Paul speaks on how those many are to function together. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. So flowing from verses 4 and 5, we have this, right? A couple different things. We're going to have these different gifts, and we're to use them. And here's two things that are clear here. One, that the gifts aren't separated from grace. Right? He makes that having gifts that differ according to grace given. Those go together. So he's not merely speaking of natural talents and abilities. Although they might overlap, they might have some similarities, they might even flow out of some of our natural talents and gifts that we already have. But those things, if we're just talking about natural gifts and talents of themselves, are of no spiritual benefit. And he clearly is speaking of things that are of spiritual benefit. So we're talking about gifts that are not separated from grace. They're connected to grace. They're grace-formed. They're grace-fueled. And the second thing is that these gifts are not in isolation of the body. They go together. Verses 4 and 5, you belong to one another and you have these gifts that are to belong to one another, right? You, they're connected together. You, you disconnect the gifts and the body, and, and what you have here is, is, if not in enemy territory, closely edging upon it. Where do you see power separate from the body? It, see it in demonic activity? It, I mean, we could see great power apart from these things. It's going to be displayed. Uh, most of that is enemy territory. But, but gifts displayed with the body, that, that's, that's the realm of Christ. 
And the different gifts are all to help the body function together. So here's what we can say clearly. It's not about individuals and their gifts. It's about the body. And that's the clear New Testament emphasis. In 1 Corinthians 12, he, he, he emphasizes you have lots of gifts, same spirit. And he says you all meant to function together for the good of this one body. In 1 Corinthians 14, he, he says over and over again, this is for the building up. This is for the building up. This is for the good of others. In, in 1 Peter 4, another place of spiritual gifts, he says this is for the glory of God through Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, he says he gave, same word there, he gifted some, some apostles and prophets, pastors and teachers to, to build up the body. What? For the, for the glory of Christ. And so the gifts and the grace that fuel and form them are connected to the body and flow for Christ's glory. That's what it's about. I like how John Owen puts it. He says, grace influenceth gifts unto a due exercise, prevents their abuse, stirs them up unto proper occasions, keeps them from being a matter of pride or contention, and subordinates them in all things unto the glory of God. We miss this, and we're going to disobey verse 3, thinking soberly and not thinking too highly of ourselves. We miss this, and we're going to fall prey to the temptation to center gifting on ourselves and not on what they were intended for, for the body, for the glory of Christ. And remember, when he starts talking about these gifts here in verse 6, that he's appealing to everyone, each one of them. And he says of them, each one has a gift. Each in Christ has gifts, and they're to be used. So in this giving of gifts. There, there's no one that's on the sidelines. It's not the professionals that do all the things. <laughs> no one's on the sidelines here. Each one has these gifts. But also alongside that is that no one is the, the star. You're on the sideline, but you're not the star in the center of the show because it's so clear in this text that these function together. You're meant to have these functioning together. Not one standing out as the bright spot amongst the kind of a I mean, a lot, of, a lot of aches and pains in the body, but here's this one bright spot. It's all these gifts functioning together for the good. And so here's what he says about this functioning together. He says, if you have these gifts uh, given by the grace of God, use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now, because I, I just mentioned in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4, now these are other places where spiritual gifts are listed in the same kind of ways. And, and there's the differing lists, right? They're, they don't all line up. You, you could match those up, and there's going to be longer lists or shorter lists, different things on different lists. And so clearly, the things that Paul is giving here is not an exhaustive list. In fact, it's not even a detailed list. He actually goes through it pretty quickly, doesn't he? He doesn't give much detail here, does he? Like, we want more. I keep thinking, like, could you tell us what prophecy is a little bit more clearly? Could you tell us how it's going to be used? He doesn't do that. And I think that that's instructive. It's instructive that verse 3's warning is really, really clear. And then the definitions and the, how this is going to flow out of these gifts is not even given. That's instructive for us. That is that the New Testament prioritizes certain things, even in speaking about spiritual gifts. The New Testament gives tons of weight towards the character of Christ be forming in individuals and in the body of Christ over spiritual gifts performed. The New Testament prioritizes Christ's character being formed in and through us over spiritual gifts being performed outside of us. I mean, over and over again, we can make this case. You, you listen to Paul's prayers. And when he prays, 
He's praying that they would understand the love of God. He's praying that they would have this great knowledge of God. Not that they would be great and powerful in their signs and in their workings and their spiritual gifts, although he knows that that will be part of their functioning together. He prioritizes Christ in them, and it's as if it flows downhill. If you're in Christ, you belong wholly to him, then downhill flows from that, this spiritual gifting, that we have all of Christ, and we have all this too, and we can function together and work together, and that's the emphasis that the New Testament gives. And so with some sober thinking in mind, let's listen to what he says about these gifts, or what these gifts are. He says, if prophecy, and it seems like, man, I'll be darned if you didn't have to start with the hardest one. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. Prophecy wouldn't have been heard of to even the Roman Christians here. Right? You think of, of different places in Acts, but Acts chapter 16, there's this uh, a slave girl who was kind of telling fortunes, like giving some future so that people, they got really mad when Paul uh, stopped her because they're like, hey, that was where we were making all of our money. You shouldn't have done that. We don't like that. We're messing with our stuff. So it wasn't unheard of. Now, likely, what this is referring to, this gift of prophecy, is thinking of something spontaneous, right? There's teaching later, so perhaps those are separate, uh, as spontaneous, and it gives some sort of practical guidance. One says that it's a human report of God's revelation. I think that's fair to say. It is certainly tied to and weighed according to the scriptures that have been given. We we see that in 1 Corinthians 14 as well. You're going to weigh these things according to revelation. And and we need to make sure that we separate out. Like We have revelation. We know that that God in his word has given us all that we need for life and godliness. And so whatever comes alongside that can be a tremendous gift from God. But is not something that we have to say is put up at the same level as revelation from God. Still might be needed for our building up and for our good, but not at revelation. And so there might be some, a sense of this prophecy being not revelation, but illumination, like seeing truths that are there and connecting them to concrete, practical, daily living, daily, practical life that we might live out to the glory of God, right? Remember, God's will doesn't tell us every single detail of our lives and how it's meant to be worked out. And so we might need some help there, right? I don't know what to do here. Maybe someone might be gifted to come alongside and say, hey, here's maybe a direction to think about. And we weigh that, and we can live it out for the glory of God. But he says of this that it's to be done in proportion to faith. It's not to go beyond the faith that has been given. I think proportion, measure, same kind of word that he used in verse 3. Clearly, verse 3, and thinking of ourselves, even with these gifts, is more highly than we ought, is a temptation. And so clearly you say, like, no, you need to exercise the gift in proportion to what has been given. The test of this may be, if, if you're gifted in prophecy, in proportion to your faith, think, all right, where does it stop actually building up others? Where does it stop being beneficial, spiritually beneficial to others? Where, where it stops that and it starts just to be a thing on its own, we're in territory that Paul says that, that's outside of what the gifts are given for. And I would say outside of the proportion of faith that has been given. So test, think about it. Where is this building up and, and where has it gone too far? Now I'm no longer building things up, but I'm falling into the temptation to want to become the star. Or we could go to the other side. It seems like a less of a temptation, but where am I tempted to, to maybe be on the sideline rather than living according to the proportion of faith that God has given? Verses 7 and 8, he goes on, more lists, right? If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. 
You think about how maybe Paul could lay these things out. And here's one, service maybe hits the physical needs of the body, or teaching might hit the mind. Exhortation maybe more, a little more specifically the heart. Now again, that, that might be how he's kind of working through it, but that doesn't mean that these don't overlap. Like as if you're serving, that doesn't hit your heart. <laughs> Or, or if you're teaching that that doesn't hit your heart, or, or vice versa, right? These all go together, but it seems like maybe more directly aimed at physical, or more directly aimed in the mind, or maybe more directly aimed at the heart, as exhortation seems to be. And Paul calls for these, and those with these gifts, to use them as they've received them. Like, there's a sense to be devoted to them, right? Be in with them. P- perhaps the warning away from looking around... To like, where can I serve, where can I serve? To just getting busy. I I think that's kind of the emphasis here. That if you're this, then do this. If you're this, then do this. Like, get busy. Verse 8, he says to the one who contributes in his generosity. The one who uh, leads, lead with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with with cheerfulness. So you contribute, do it with generosity. Like the the book of Acts, they they come and they laid their, their, their very possessions at the feet of the apostles. You remember Ananias and Sapphira, they came, they didn't lay the full amount down. And they weren't rebuked for not laying the full amount down. Right? That wasn't the issue. They were lying to God. That was the issue. They were saying they were laying the full amount down. Like, but there are people that were glad to say, here's everything. And let's build this church. Do it with cheerfulness, generosity. If you lead, lead with zeal. There's a sense that there's no... Passivity, that you're doing it with all that you have. There, there's no laziness in this. You're, you're giving it your all, not a, a half-hearted effort. For acts of mercy, do them with cheerfulness. You, you think about the collection that Paul was taking as he went and, and planted churches and strengthened churches and talked to churches around. He was collecting for, for the people that were in Judea that had suffered under a famine, and, and he's collecting money to, to bring relief to them. And he says, in the midst of that very context to the Corinthians, he says, hey, if you can do this, give. And God loves what kind of a giver? Think about the goodness of God that he would say, not that just he loves giving. He wants a cheerful giver, and he loves it. It delights him when we give with delight. He wants a cheerful giver. And so, hey, acts of mercy, do it with cheerfulness. Perhaps some of these areas that are connected with these gifts are are potentially places of, of temptation, like it would be hard if, if you're gifted with acts of mercy and you're always seeing where there's some need and where there's hurt that you might be tempted to not be so happy about it anymore because this is really hard. When you're leading, like I felt this a few times leading, like, man, I keep failing and that's not very fun. So I don't want to lead as, I want to get out there quite as quickly next time because I did that and it didn't go so well. Like, he says, no, lead with zeal. You can see maybe these are areas of temptation connected with these. But, but what's interesting is, is how quickly he moves through them. And how little he details them or describes them. He doesn't. And yet we've spent 11 chapters working through the, the greatness and the glory of the gospel. And after verse 8, you know what he's going to do? He's going to go on. And he's going to move past spiritual gifts to other aspects of body life. And again, this is instructive. What he wants for the body that belongs to one another is the deep formation and the rooting of Christ's character in our midst that's going to come out in some spiritual gifts. But again, he doesn't just highlight, this is what we all are all about. This is the thing. No, Christ is the thing. And these gifts are serving the purpose of Christ being the thing, or they're not given or being used for the reason they've been given. But there's a variety here, and they're all meant to function together. They're not detailed, but clearly meant to cooperate with one another. Because again, if 
the ear thinks that it's the only thing and the eye thinks it's the only thing, then the body gets pretty out of whack pretty quickly. You know what I'm struck by as I come to the end of this list is what Paul doesn't give here. Paul doesn't give a spiritual gifts assessment. That might be helpful. Might be help you you see some things that maybe you haven't seen. Might help you even think soberly. But he doesn't give that in the scripture. It's not to say that that thing thing is, is unimportant, but he's like, the formation of Christ is really important. And he gives himself to writing about that. He doesn't give spiritual gifts. He gives no actual specific outlets. Like, hey, Paul, where's my, my prophecy gift to be used in the corporate setting? Where's my acts of mercy to be used when I'm gathered with my home group? He doesn't give those outlets. He doesn't give a spiritual gifts assessment. He gives a body. He doesn't say, here's the outlet. He says, function together. That's what he does. And so we, what do we do then? We, we consider one another. We think about one another. We belong to one another. Look around. What needs are there in this body? What's lacking? What, what might you be impressed to do? Like, listen, what are people saying to you? What, what are they saying are the needs? What are you hearing from them? And then just get busy serving. And we remember that the first goal in all of this isn't to find out our gift. It's to serve for the glory of Christ. We're to glorify Christ, to build others up. And so let's look around. Let's listen to what might be some needs. And let's just start serving. Start there. Start there. My guess is that your gifting will come along with some sort of burden. Like you're going to look around and you're like, man, I see a need in the church like this. That might be connected to your gifting. That's my guess. Most of the time it is. My, my guess is that most of the time when you're serving according to the gift that the Spirit has given, that there's going to be a joy associated with the thing that you're doing, with the way that it works its way out within the body. It might align with some of your natural gifting and talents because God didn't make a mistake when he formed you and fashioned you when you were in the womb, right? But now, if that's what it is, it's, it's a gift that's not just functioning for the sake of itself. It's, it's a gift for something functioning for the, for the sake of others. It's a redeemed thing. It's now bent toward others, not bent towards making me great or making me worthwhile. It's bent towards making others understand and know and love the glory of Christ. And all this, he says, is to be done, whatever these gifts are, with the warning of verse 3, with sober judgment and in proportion to the faith. In other words, how do we know if we're doing that? How do we know if we're exercising our gifts in proportion? How do we know if we're living in the grace that's been measured out to us? M- my suggestion is, I-, I don't know the answer to that, but here's what we-, we could say. Stay low. Christ is like, it's better to be asked up than, than to be put back down. Like, stay humble. That's, that's a, a constant a command of the scripture. Like, humble yourself before God. And, and at the appropriate time, he's going to lift you up. We, we trust that we can stay really low and he's going to give us to where we need to be. We can be asked up if we need to be. We can be faithful in the small things. And Christ says, if you can be faithful in the small, then maybe you can be faithful with the big things. That's where we start. That's how we can think soberly and in proportion to our faith. And I love this quote from one commentator when thinking about spiritual gifts. He says, we cannot demand that the Lord provide precisely the socket into which our gifts may best be plugged. I love that. Just think about, "Ah, where's the socket to be plugged into? Like, where's the thing in this church? I want to use my gifts and this must be the thing. He says, we can't demand that. Our first goal is to get the job done and only secondarily to find the best use of our gifts. To be sure, the Lord who calls us will provide opportunities for the use of the gifts that he has given. He doesn't waste gifts and give them for nothing. He's going to give opportunities for the use of those gifts. So if you don't know your gift or gifts, you're not sure where it fits in with the body, no worries. Go back to verse 1. Say to God, here's my life 
as a sacrifice to you that it may be holy and pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And keep doing that. And we're certain that if we do that before God, he's going to make sure that he uses that for his glory. And we don't have to be concerned with not having a certain gift. Man, I wish I had that one. Or I don't have all of them. Or my gift isn't great. We don't have to be concerned about all that because we're in Christ. Jesus is all that we need. He, he manifests these things perfectly in himself. He's the great one. And we can remember that this is the in Christ body. It's a body by his grace and for his glory. And so, in other words, he, he is ample. He is certainly able to take care of it and to build it up in the way that he sees fit as the one who is Lord over it. So, church, let's think of ourselves soberly. Let's belong to others. And let's function together by the grace of Jesus and for his glory. Would you pray with me? God, we asked you this morning through song to revive us again and to restore us. And I want to ask you this morning for a revival of unity, a revival of oneness that we would get our eyes on you and off of ourselves and as we gaze at you that we would see more clearly and more importantly one another I know there are those in this body who pour themselves out uh, I know there are probably some who are holding other people in your body at arm's length, and I pray that we would see one another and that we would love one another enough to get uncomfortable and to serve and to see needs and to simply meet them and trust you to meet them through your Holy Spirit within us, God. We uh, can always grow in our love for one another and uh, we even see that in the Bible. We see some churches that are obsessed with themselves and sinning and harming each other, and we see some churches that are doing well. And, and Paul says, you're doing well in your love for one another. Do even more. And so, God, uh, we want to do more. We want to love each other well. So thank you for knitting us together. Thank you for giving us all one Holy Spirit to dwell within us and knit us together. Will you help us to see the importance of serving one another and seeing what kind of supernatural resources you dig up that you provide in us to bless each other? God, for those who are on the outside looking in, I pray that they would see their need for you today and also their need for the body of Christ, the need for others. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your patience. Pray that you would grow us and change us today. In your name I pray, amen.